there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod. Pina, Michael, it's been a pretty strange week, I've got to say, in the NBA. If you look back over the last seven days, we've had some incredible performances by Stephen Curry, 57 points, Jokic, 50 points, LeBron, the Lakers, three straight overtime victories. And yet all the discussion really has been off the court. And that was true even yesterday as we got three like very dramatic late game situations. Uh, the, the Hawks were in a tight one. The Bucks and Suns were in a tight one. The Lakers and Thunder uh, went to overtime as well. And yet it seems like all of the conversation is off the court right now. First, we had the big all-star brouhaha with a lot of the players not wanting to uh, participate. We had Kevin Durant's contact tracing incident. And then in the middle of this week, just kind of dumped on our laps uh, by Tim Cato of The Athletic, was news that the Dallas Mavericks uh, were ready to just sort of re-enter uh, the culture wars, uh, you know, intentionally or unintentionally by not playing the national anthem uh, before the roughly dozen or so games that they had held at American Airlines Center there in Dallas. Now, uh, this got out. A lot of people got really upset. Uh, the NBA stepped in and said, okay, we're going to make it uniform across the board so that all teams will play the national anthem uh, before games uh, now that fans are coming back into the arena. And so it was, I would say, maybe a 24 to 48 hour storm, but it was a very stormy storm. And I think it hurt some feelings on all sides. Joel wrote in to say, 
I continue to be disappointed by the NBA and its decision-making the last four months. First, it was the COVID protocols uh, with the confusion and the backstepping. Then they have started allowing fans in states. And next, they decided to force an all-star game after originally having scrapped that game when the season was first announced. And now they are requiring the national anthem to be played. It feels like they have regressed when it comes to sports organizations. Uh, Previous to the last few months, they were heads and shoulders above the NFL and Major League Baseball when it came to social, political, and societal issues. But right now, wow, I just don't know. I don't know if I have a question here, but ever since the very successful and socially responsible bubble during a pandemic and the discussion around racism and police brutality, which were monumental to the national discussion of important issues, the NBA has sure taken a step back and undid a lot, if not all of that good. So, Michael, I'm curious, when you're stepping back and just thinking about what happened there with the Mavericks, and you're reading Joel's email here, and I've seen a lot of frustration similar to Joel uh, on social media as well, but I've also seen uh, a number of voices on the other side saying, come on, you've got to play the national anthem. What do you make of all of this, and is this the story the NBA wants right now in the middle of a season where there's a lot going on pretty well? I mean, I don't know about you, but personally, I could not care less about this i was a little surprised honestly that it it kind of blew up the way it did like they weren't singing the national anthem for the first 13 games uh that were played this season and nobody cared because nobody knew and then once people figured it out they flipped out and so like to me like i i hear joel's uh point of view. I understand it. I understand why people are upset on either side. The way I view the national anthem, though, is that it's basically like a proxy for all these feelings that people have about the country, you know, patriotism and nationalism. And that is how the national anthem first started and and why it was first sung before sporting events in World War One and World War Two. But today it's just like this perfunctory exercise. And Uh, It was written by a slave owner, and it doesn't mean the same thing to a lot of people, and it is frankly offensive to some people. So, like, if it were up to me, it would – I'd never understood it since I was little, before I even knew all the background. I just didn't get what the connection was between singing a national anthem for a country. Uh, By the way, in which there's a ton of international players who – it's just like – I think it's a waste of time to get worked up over it because what people are really – upset about is, you know, the issues that the national anthem has come to represent. And so I wish that those were actually the focus of discussion instead of strictly like whether or not you should stand or kneel or sing the national anthem. Like I don't, I I think it's just a big, like, I don't know. It's just a dumb topic of conversation. (laughs) Well, okay. Uh, Nice to know where you're weighing in on this. Look, I hear you. I do think for, you know, it registers differently for lots of different people. I mean, some people are really, really diehard about this stuff. I mean, you see the Texas politician come out immediately and it's like the defense of the National Anthem Act, right? And he's going to like make it so that... (laughs) Everyone, you know, has to play this anthem, and and you see some of the other sports organizations coming out saying we always, pr- you know, proudly play the national anthem, and it's clear that they're messaging those things to people who re- this really does matter to a lot, and I want to respect those feelings too. I completely know what you're saying. I completely hear what Joel is saying, and I think Adam Silver is kind of in this spot where 
he tried to walk it right down the middle. If you go back to December, his his comments were, um, I understand that there's very passionate feelings on all sides of the national anthem issue with respect to kneeling. And so what he was saying was basically, look, like if people want to kneel, we respect that. We won't find them or punish them in any way for doing that. And now we're going to go forward. And that seemed like the most reasonable, all-encompassing compromise, uh, you know, coming out of the bubble, right? Where it's like, all right, it's just pretty much to each his own. Whatever you want to do, it's wide open. And I think what Mark Cuban did was sort of made his own policy, which on the, on the grand spectrum of policies towards the national anthem, I mean, it was fairly radical, right? To just not play it after years of playing it when everyone else mm-hmm. is playing it. And when the NBA rules have kind of, you know, dictated that this is how you do pregame and all of that. I mean, he definitely stepped um, out of line. Now, I'm with you. It's pretty interesting that nobody realized for more than a month that he was doing this. I will say during the bubble when they were doing the scrimmage games, not the real games, if I'm not mistaken, they didn't play the national anthem before the scrimmage games. And I remember sitting there looking around like, wait a minute, did I miss it? No, they must have played it. They always play it, you know, and like you're doing that second guessing thing. So I can actually put myself in the mind of a Dallas reporter and, and, you know, before some of these games and being like, huh, did that just take place? Or maybe I was in the bathroom when it happened or like, how did I miss it? You know? Um, and so that's probably why it took a little bit longer than usual for people to realize. Uh, but, you know, I understand why people would want to have traditions that they remember their entire lives and why they, I, I don't personally feel nearly as passionately as a lot of people do about that. I always thought it was weird that we were doing the Pledge of Allegiance when we were in, in you know, elementary school. It's like, who's watching this, right? Are we filming this for somebody? <laughs> I, I don't really understand why we're doing this. But I do think that the entire back and forth kind of underscores the difficult financial position the NBA finds itself in, right? Like, when you're potentially losing up to $4 billion of revenue this year by not being able to have fans in your building, when you're trying to really retain relationships with your season ticket holders and keep everybody happy and positive at this particular moment because ultimately you need to be able to welcome them back into buildings and you've got to do that in a situation where they may or may not feel comfortable because of the pandemic and when you're in a situation where you just pretty much need to have as many fans as possible when you're doing things like trying to hold an all-star game to reach as many people as possible because you've taken such a big financial hit an issue like this winds up looking a little bit differently, doesn't it? Like you're kind of in a situation where maybe money matters more than it typically would. Would you agree? Perhaps. Yeah. But sometimes I'm just like, you know, why are you trying to sell your product to people who wouldn't buy it anyway? You know what I mean? Like there's that old marketing slogan. Um, And so like if you're the NBA, there's a lot of outrage. I do wonder how many people who are outraged actually care about the NBA in the first place or they're just using the national anthem to kind of politicize their feelings. You know, you mentioned that politician in Texas. I I, I don't know if he is a Dallas Mavericks fan, but, you know, I think he has his own motivations and reasons for behaving the way he is. Yeah, he's got the authentic Tim Hardaway Jr. jersey at home, for sure. <laughs> bought Future it, Celtic, by the way. Yeah, bought it straight um, from NBAshop.com, yeah. But, you know, going back to Joel's email, which I think was really interesting, like, I don't think that the league is behaving now any differently than they did in the bubble, to be honest. I mean, the whole thing about the bubble is you're trying to preserve revenue. And at the end of the day, this is all about revenue loss. And the league is a business. And it's not a uh, kumbaya sing-along session. And so I I think that the league 
tries to make strides towards social progress that are admirable, but they're straddling a line here, as you laid out, in that you, you know, you can't please everybody, but at the same time, you're trying to like open your doors to the widest amount of people as possible. So it's just a really difficult situation for the league. I'm sure Adam Silver was not thrilled that this was the number one topic of conversation related to his product. But like, I, I don't, I, I just, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, like I, there's, there's no easy way out of it. I mean, people were sharing columns written in the Dallas newspaper 25 years ago on this very subject. And it's like, look, I mean, <laughs> we've made basically zero progress on this issue. And certainly you and I are not going to hammer out the answer, you know, in, in the next five minutes or so. So it's a tricky spot. I mean, isn't this almost like the NBA's version of Republicans buy sneakers too, right? In terms of this national anthem issue, like they are going to have fans on both sides. Those fans matter and they're trying to expand this fan base at this moment i have noticed some differences from the bubble i do think the players had a unique leverage situation last summer where because they all had to go down there together and they almost had to like pitch the players on the idea of disney world they were able to have you know black lives matter on the court they were able to have the slogans on the jersey they had the big um you know pre-game demonstrations not just the players kneeling right but those videos that they were playing regularly they had signage throughout the courts I do think that there was a different look and feel to the NBA product in the bubble that appealed to some people, and it sounds like it really appealed to Joel. And I think the NBA has kind of backed off that a little bit, right? I mean, you see some of the slogan T-shirts the Lakers have been wearing, uh, you know, Black History T-shirts this month. I'm sure other teams uh, have been as well. But if you look at just the actual television product, I think there's fewer visual indicators this season. Like, I think this year's version of the TV broadcast looks much more similar to, like, last year's or the year before, like a typical year, as opposed to exactly what we saw in the bubble. And some people might say, well, okay, um, you know, how important was it really what they did there? And that's open for debate. I I personally thought it was very meaningful to the players, and it it came at a very important time in a presidential election year where it seems like it inspired a lot of people. Um, But it does seem like they've backed off some of that. Would you agree? Yeah, but I mean, that's what I expected. I don't, I mean, this is the world that we live in. This is the United States of America. Um, This is reality. So I, you know, I wasn't expecting uh, Black Lives Matter to be painted on every court throughout the the country uh, or those uh, slogans on the jerseys to just continue um, for like an indefinite period like I just that didn't really make a lot of sense and I think that there was a intersection between you know a worldwide movement and the the NBA season trying to resume down in the bubble and in a lot of ways that moment has passed and so the NBA is kind of passing along with it not that they've completely abandoned um, their efforts to support social social injustice but it's just it's that was a very specific time for, I guess, for good and for bad. It was. And we're always going to remember it for sure. I mean, I think the year 2020 is getting circled in the history books. There's no doubt. And I just, I think that Joel's onto something here this idea that some of the lessons that they took and some of the visual and, uh, I guess, you know, just like kind of the power of the collective players that they were able to pull together. Um, it seemed like that was going to be able to potentially get us to a better place. And to have that taken away, I could understand why people would be upset by that. But I could also understand why the NBA would sit back after that entire experience and say like, well, I'm not sure this is exactly what our new reality is going to be forever going forward. You know, we've got to make sure we're appealing to 
you know, 30 fan bases and 30 markets, not just television viewers um, during the summer when, you know, it's very unique TV circumstances and very unique, you know, societal circumstances. All right, Michael, let's uh, shift gears here to a lighter subject. We got a, a nice question here from John in LA. He's writing, guys, you are really missing out by not talking about LaMelo Ball in Charlotte. This Hornets team is not the 1980 Lakers by a long shot, <laughs> but the similarities between the effects on the team by a rookie point guard who plays with absolute joy at what he can contribute to his teammates becoming their best selves is really there. It's so much fun to watch the Hornets having fun, and it's almost entirely due to LaMelo. LaMelo to Miles on the crazy lob passes are an actual thing, but it goes to everyone out there. Watch the fourth quarter connection a couple nights ago with Biombo and the huge smiles on both of their faces. I love Tyrese Halliburton, and a real case can be made for him as Rookie of the Year for what he's done in Sacramento so far, but I think by the end of this season, it's not even going to be close. This kid could be the face of the league for the next 15 years because he's such a joy. So, Michael, are you in, like John is, on the LaMelo experience? And what have you liked and disliked about it so far? Uh, I am I guess I'm in. I don't think I'm as deep in as John. I mean, bringing up the 80 Lakers right off the top was very bold. I respect it. Um, I don't, I, by the way. I don't. And look, I'm not going to get on my high horse here too much. Can we please leave a few of these players <laughs> out of the conversation about comparison points. I mean, Magic Johnson needs to be right up there with the likes of Michael Jordan when it comes to guys that we just don't compare players to, pre-draft prospects Mm. to. It's just not fair. There's been one guy in my lifetime, Michael, who has actually lived up to the Magic Johnson comparison, and it's been LeBron James. I'm enjoying the LaMelo Ball highlight train as much as everyone else, but we cannot elevate this guy into that same category. Now, if you want to say very specifically, you know, his transition passes, frozen ropes, you know, crazy bounce passes, whatever, you know, he he does that particular thing as well as, you know, anybody except for maybe five players in NBA history, including Magic, like, okay, but please, we can't be kind of putting those kinds of expectations on these kids, it's not fair to the kid. It's also really not fair to Magic Johnson. He did an awful lot on the court. LaMelo is not going to be finals MVP this year. I can promise you that as a rookie. Yeah, also, I mean, to be fair to LaMelo, like Magic Johnson was at Michigan State toiling around, barely beating Indiana State in the national championship. Yeah, LaMelo's already in the pros. I mean, it's just like, come on, there's no comparison. No. Win- winner, at every, I- winner at every level, Michael. <laughs> he won in high school, won in college, won in the pros. He's a Michigan legend. You're going to have to back off. You know I yes. uh, have a lot of respect for Magic Johnson because he's a Spartan, and I'll still ride for him. But uh, yes, it's just not fair, man. Man, you can't do that to these kids. No, I, I mean, I'm, I, I agree with you. But, you know, sticking to what we are seeing in the present, I'm loving the LaMelo Ball experience. I said before the draft that if I had the number one pick and I was the Timberwolves, I would probably stay away because of, uh, you know, his, there were some defensive concerns and I felt like his game was just so similar to D'Angelo Russell's. I I still am fine with them taking Anthony Edwards because I'm actually pretty high on Anthony Edwards. And when he's been on the floor with Carl Anthony Towns, it looks really good. They look really good together. But LaMelo Ball is clearly special. He's clearly going to be a perennial all-star. 
in his six starts this season, which are Charlotte's last six games, he's shooting 48% from behind the three-point line on seven attempts per game. So I think the questions about, and these aren't like wide open spot-ups, like a lot of them are pull-ups, a lot of them are contested. He's just really special um, and has such confidence in himself. He gets to the rim basically when he wants. He gets to the free throw line. Uh, To say nothing about the passing, which is like truly must-see television and one of the reasons why I'm watching a lot of like I wasn't expecting to watch this much of the Charlotte Hornets ever in my entire life and now I find myself watching at least two games a week pretty much because of him and uh, before I stop my little rant here I do want to say Tom Ziller pointed this out on Twitter I believe but the real winner of all of this is Charlotte Hornets play-by-play announcer Eric Collins who it's just like, I don't know if you've heard him do him call a recent LaMelo game, but it is like 10 out of 10 entertainment. I love it. His excitement is my excitement, and it's just a fun experience, and I'm happy for the Charlotte Hornets right now. Now, he's bringing like the Andres Cantor goal energy to the LaMelo <laughs> experience, and he understands exactly uh, what fell in his lap and he's running with it. And I think, uh, you know, more power to him. I'm usually pretty old school when it comes to the broadcasting stuff. And it's like play by play guys. Like that's not your lane, but he's actually making it work. Maybe I'm just getting soft around the edges in my old age. Uh, Michael, I don't know, but I, you know, I'm, I'm with it now. If they keep doing it and they're down 20 and you know, they're below 500 in a couple months. Okay. Maybe we're going to have to reassess, but as this team gets better and, and does, you know, take on, uh, LaMelo as its main identity. And I do think that's coming. I think you're right on that. I mean, he's pretty much going to be the face of that franchise going forward. Um, there's going to be the opportunity for a lot of excitement. Absolutely, their their play-by-play voice is, is capturing all of it. And for a fan base that needs it, by the way, there really hasn't been a ton to cheer for for that Hornets franchise or reasons to tune in, like you're mentioning. And he's completely flipped that um, in the span of basically a month and a half. The one part of John's email that I really do agree with is this idea that, okay, maybe Tyrese Halliburton is the rookie of the year for that first quarter, and that's who I picked. But I do think LaMelo, now that he's into that starting role, now that he's really, you know, kind of spreading his wings, getting used to it, settling in, people are working in around him, uh, and he's getting comfortable. I do think he's going to be the runaway winner here. I think uh, John is on to something. It's going to be very hard to stop just the excitement and the buzz that's going to be building as he continues to play big minutes. I do think people are slowly catching on like you have, Michael, to like, wait a minute. like We have to rethink everything we knew about the Charlotte Hornets. These guys are a different franchise. So um, that is not easy to do. That's exactly what you're trying to get from a top three pick. This is why I was arguing that the Chicago Bulls should go out and grab LaMelo, right? Because they've just had such problems at, at the point guard position and I know Kobe White shooting the basketball well and everything else but I would Mm. rather have the LaMelo ball experience than the Kobe White experience that's a pretty easy call now in terms of Minnesota I, I okay I understand what you're saying okay maybe don't back off of that Anthony Edwards pick yet let's see what he can do that's totally fair and and I feel the same way number two with with Golden State and there's been a lot of second guessing there of okay well you know Wiseman's kind of struggled the on-off numbers aren't great with him on the court and, and look at what LaMelo could do he would take the pressure off Steph Curry I mean you can imagine another universe where uh, LaMelo works pretty well in Golden State I guess my point in Minnesota was I do think we've seen enough evidence to suggest that you should not have drafted around D'Angelo Russell 
to avoid LaMelo Ball, right? And I already thought that was kind of a shaky proposition because I've pretty much been on out on D'Angelo Russell for the last three, four, five years. But if the main logic was, well, Edwards fits better with Russell than Ball does, to me, that's flawed logic because, you know, Russell has not done hardly anything this season. It has not been an impressive season from Russell. It wasn't an impressive season from Russell last year. I think I right now, I would pretty strongly consider rather having Ball than Russell if I had the choice. And if we're already feeling like that in year one, where are you going to be in you know year three of LaMelo Ball's second contract when he's like probably a max level player and you know carrying a franchise, right? So to me, I, I do think that's the one thing that you really got to go back and parse is why did Minnesota pass on him? If they were just completely convinced that Anthony Edwards was the best player no matter what, that's fine. If they, you know, were making that decision based on fit or influenced by fit, that part I do think deserves second guessing. Yeah, that's fair. I I would think that if you're, I mean, if you're taking the number one pick, if you have the number one pick, you take the best player. Like, I don't think that that should be a controversial statement. Um, and so when I look at Edwards, who's really started to come along a little bit of late, who also just entered Minnesota's starting lineup after starting the season coming off the bench. And he just looks increasingly comfortable by the day. I wrote about him a couple of weeks ago. And I'm just, I, I really love his game. And I feel like he's a type of player who, uh, you know, just he's hitting threes. He can, he's starting to finish around the basket. Just physically, he's just way more athletic than LaMelo or just about any human being walking this earth right now. So I feel like they they can have some confidence there. And, you know, I, I but I, I fundamentally do agree with you that it's like, you know, uh, just because you have Russell on a max contract and he is best friends with your franchise center, that means that you shouldn't take a player who has some overlap in skill set. Uh, so if that was their thinking, then that's a mistake. But I think at the end of the day, it won't matter because Edwards is going to be a very, very good player for a very long time. No, I hear you on that for sure. I definitely think it's easy to to misanalyze uh, young prospects after two or three months, especially in a weird year. I like to try to give them a year or two at least to settle in before we're making like sweeping judgments on winners and losers, you know, um, or saying like somebody completely botched a pick. Now, sometimes it is more obvious than that. I'm not sure LaMelo has quite reached that stage yet. I want to see him continue to shoot the basketball like this before we're going to start saying, hey, everybody above uh, Charlotte screwed up. But I do think we've reached the stage already where if you're a Hornets fan, a Hornets broadcaster, or Michael Jordan, uh, you could be smoking cigars very happily wherever you're at and saying, hey, that worked out great. We had the third pick and we're feeling really, really good about it. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. All right, let's shift gears here to the latest round of All-Star Returns and also uh, you know, a question we got on some of the All-Star events, right? Because we've gotten some... Uh, new trickling rumors about what the NBA might be looking to do uh, at All-Star Weekend next month in Atlanta. Uh, There wasn't a ton of movement in the second round of All-Star votes. We did see LeBron pass Kevin Durant for first place overall. Bradley Beal and Kyrie Irving still holding strong in the Eastern Conference backcourt. Uh, Steph and Luka, same deal in the Western Conference backcourt. LeBron, Jokic, Kawhi, the top three in the West frontcourt. And Katie, Giannis, and Joel Embiid, the top three in the East front court. It's getting a little bit close between Kawhi and Anthony Davis, but otherwise things are, you know, pretty much set as is. Um, we got a question from Michael who is now calling himself Michael. I lost my wife for Kobe in Tasmania. He's going to milk this thing for all it's worth. Michael, one of our diehard a plus listeners. Uh, so Michael writes, Hey, this year's all-star event sure has caused some controversy with the player backlash and the safety concern. But this got me thinking, how can the NBA really drum up more fan excitement about the event and and not worry so much about the player opinions? Well, I might just have the answer. Once this all-star list is finalized, I propose the three-point contest and the dunk contest are completed only by the all-stars who are actually in attendance, with each all-star having to appear in one of the competitions. This would generate huge excitement to see the best of the best in the game and competing in two very specific fields. So, Michael, we discussed a possible, like you know, possibility of a dream slam dunk contest field previously. But now we're getting word that the NBA might be trying to work in a skills competition and a three-point competition uh, before the All-Star game on that Sunday and then possibly doing the dunk contest at halftime of the All-Star game, which seems strange to me because the dunk contest actually goes on for quite a while. That's going to be a long halftime. Guys are going to be coming out, uh, you know, getting uh, getting cold. You know, the legs are going to be getting cold if they're watching this thing for 45 minutes. But I'm curious, if you had to use kind of projected All-Star rosters to fill out a skills challenge, a three-point contest, and a dunk contest, I want to hear your picks. So starting with the skills challenge, uh, my six guys that I picked are... Kyrie Irving, uh, Trey Young, Luca, LeBron, 
Uh, and then my last two are, we'll see if they are all-stars. Uh, one of them probably won't be, but I'm including him because I want him to be in this competition. Uh, De'Aaron Fox, who just is incredible at everything, and our old friend LaMelo, who we were just spent 20 <laughs> minutes talking about. <laughs> it's kind of surprising to me LaMelo hasn't gotten more all-star votes. I'm still surprised by that. You know, I, I thought he would have made a push among the younger demographic. People were just really excited to see him there. Same. Um, and I, I don't know if the coaches are going to select him, Michael. That's the thing. But maybe it'll be <laughs> one of those things. Remember when Jeremy Lin just got his way to the All-Star weekend, you know, just like, hey, we're making an exception to get Jeremy Lin there. Maybe they're going to be a, a LaMelo exception as well. Um, you you left out big joker, Michael. We need to have Jokic in the skills competition, don't you think? No, yeah, that is, that is an oversight on my part. We'll we'll swap out LaMelo for, for Jokic. That's that seems right. Yeah. I mean, what about some of the other bigs? You know, sometimes they go bigs versus smalls in that event. I mean, is there any excitement around like a Bam or a Demonis Sabonis or any I of those guys? <laughs> Julius Randle. Do you want to see Julius Randle in the skills challenge, Michael, or no? Oh, man. Julius Randle deserves it. Uh, actually, I mean, no one deserves to be in the skills challenge because I feel honestly like it's a punishment for the players. But Julius Randle, I guess, deserves more attention, I should say, than maybe he's even getting with how well he's played but bam is definitely someone who i mean i like last year i remember him just going 110 percent, and then didn't he they won right because he hit i think he hit like a three right before tatum something like that i can't remember off the top of my head but like i know that he won and was very excited because i was reporting a profile about him at the time and i was very excited so that worked out well for everybody. Yeah, he won and you won is what you're trying to say. It was, <laughs> it, I got a little scared there. My eyes went like saucers when you were like, didn't you know you were trying to get me to instantly recall the results from last year's skill challenge just off the top of my head, Michael? Look, it's too early for all that out here, man. I don't, I don't have that kind of memory. Uh, but anyway, let me ask you this: If you're LeBron James or Kevin Durant, like one of the you know A-list stars of A-list stars, and Michael from Tasmania was in charge and he was mandating that you had to do one of these events. Which of the three events would you pick? Would you pick skills challenge? Would you pick three-point competition? Or would you pick dunk contest? Now we know LeBron has ducked the dunk contest his entire career. So that one's probably out. Yeah. Would you do three-point contest or skills challenge? Or would you surprise everybody and actually just do the dunk contest? If I was actually one of those guys, I would retire. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, <laughs> but um since i'm not i would choose the three-point contest like easily that's by far the most enjoyable and the easiest to do so uh and also like if you do the three-point contest if you're lebron and you win that's like larry bird-esque bragging rights for the rest of your life like you there's really no mountain that he has not climbed if he wins that competition so i would definitely be all up for it. If, all up for the three-point contest if I was LeBron. Yeah, he would have a shot to win it, too. He's been shooting the basketball very well. I got to say, LeBron's been playing 40-plus minutes every single night, hasn't taken a night off all it's year. ridiculous. I, I, the only explanation I can come up with is this is part of his MVP push, that he just really wants to win the MVP, and he thinks that this is going to be like a, a, you know, a really good feather in his cap for the voters. LeBron, I have an easier way. You can rest on back-to-backs if you go out there and win the dunk contest. If you win the dunk contest this year and actually participate and do it, you will have so much goodwill from the basketball gods, from the basketball fans, and from basketball media who've been waiting to see this for 15 years and never gotten the opportunity to see it. 
This is your shortcut to the MVP. You could just average like 17, 6, and 3 the rest of the season. As long as you win the dunk contest, everybody will vote for you. What do you think, Michael? No, I 100% agree. And I mean, I guess, are we about to step on who I picked for the dunk contest? Because LeBron is one of the people. Oh, (laughs) perfect. Well, let's get right to it. Who's your four-man group? So this is also, I I just couldn't get too excited about actual All-Stars. So I have LeBron. Of course. And then I also included, uh, I mean, Zion, who Zion has a case. I actually feel now that I'm, I'm, I'm writing a column right now trying to figure out who all my reserves are going to be. And I feel like Zion, first of all, his rebounding numbers are way lower than I thought they would be. He's averaging fewer than DeJounte Murray, which is strange. But um, I feel like Zion has like a legitimate case. If the Pelicans are going to get someone to the game, he might he might be the dude. Uh, so no, He's in the mix for sure. I wouldn't necessarily guarantee that he's in, but I also kind of wonder no. if, does politics weigh in here, right? You know? Uh, yes, they yeah. will. Because uh, <laughs> there, are, there are 45 nationally televised Pelicans games. There's like one a week. It is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I have fun watching that team, but like, what are we doing? Um, okay, so, so you, got, Zion- you have LeBron and Zion. Who else? So we talked about this uh on our last uh, episode i believe but i i just really want and you actually reminded me john morant like he just i i don't know how we could have a dunk contest um without him he's if he wanted to do it because there's really no one else who is more exciting um in basketball when their feet leave the ground so that would be really tough to uh to have something without him um so i have him on this list and then my fourth player uh, was initially going to be Anthony Edwards, but I don't think he's going to be invited. So, because I, I just love the way Anthony, Ed- like his power dunks are just like, I, yeah, they make my jaw drop. Um, but I guess like, you know, Zach Levine, who dropped like 49 points or whatever it was last night, 46, I think, um, against the Pelicans, and has just like, He's basically 50, 40, 90 almost, averaging Lord knows how many points per game. I don't know if he's going to make the All-Star team, but, I mean, this guy is the best dunker alive, probably. All due respect to Derek Jones Jr., or at least the best dunker in the NBA. So I think it would be awesome if he kind of came back, and I know he wants to shed that reputation of just being a dunker, et cetera. But if he was named to the team, to the all-star team, I feel like he wouldn't have a problem. Well, this is is where the politics come in again. Don't you think that they could make him a deal and be like, look, man, we know you've been really thirsty to get an all-star selection. You were really upset last year after campaigning. You're right on the borderline this year. If you agree to do the dunk contest at halftime of the All-Star game, we will let you be an All-Star. Don't you think he takes it under those scenarios? <laughs> That's a great deal for him. I don't know how he would pass it up. If I was him, I would do it 100%. There's no question. What if we did another dunk contest with like eight and a half foot hoops and we had Steph and Trey Young? Um, is that a I yes, Michael? That, or are you just I, laughing I, me out of the room? <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, I was trying to be polite. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Uh, you know, I. You know what I was thinking about though? Like, why don't we have a layup competition? Like Kyrie and Steph layups are, and Jamal Murray layups are like almost. I'm not going to say they're more entertaining than dunks, but they are very, very 
like aesthetically pleasing to the eye and I don't I like I feel like they could be even more creative also so I don't know. Maybe that's a really stupid idea, but a layup contest would be cool. Michael, am I mistaken or did in the Pro Bowl, they used to have like passing drills where there would be sort of like mechanical fake defenders and they would sort of like go back and forth and you'd have to kind of throw the the football through the um, like moving targets. That was a thing, right? I'm not making that up. Yeah. Yeah, they they, right. sh- they should do that for your layup contest. They should have mechanical defenders who are sort of like you know swinging back and forth in front of the hoop, or maybe just like popping up out of trap doors, right? And then these guys can do their little three sixty shimmies around those guys to finish their layups, and then you know you can have the inside the NBA guys grading the layups from the sideline as judges. That sounds like a pretty good time. I'd watch that. Yeah, the first time someone sprains their ankle because they tripped over a mechanical human being, <laughs> um, that would be slightly problematic going forward. But All right. I, I like where your head's at. We'll work it out. We'll get some extra padding and cushions out there. We'll see what we can do. All right, Michael, three-point contest field. What do you got? So uh, normally I, I find the dunk contest to be the main event, um, but for this particular season and for this particular player pool, I think that the three-point shootout could be just, like, better than the actual game. I think the trash-talking with the guys who I've selected and just, like, the inner rivalries and everything, like, it it would be legitimate competition. So the six players I've selected here are Steph, Paul George, Dame, KD, Kyrie, and LeBron James. That's pretty awesome. I mean, you're really loading Le- LeBron's plate here, Michael. I would also say we probably need to save Paul George for that dunk contest, too. Maybe he can do double duty along with with uh, LeBron. I mean, it's pretty hard to not make a good three-point contest field these days. Don't you remember, like, not even that long ago, eight, ten years ago, when they would just have to, like, lean on the random specialist who was just, like, you know, scraping along at 40%, right? And it's just like, oh, they're bringing this guy. Wow, I wonder what kind of a hotel he's even staying at. They probably got him at the courtyard by Marriott <laughs> down the road, you know? Um, it, you know, in some of these competitions where before the real three-point revolution, it was just like, we've got to find some people who are into this. The three-point contest has gotten incredible of late, and the superstar-level guys that you're mentioning who are all above 40% three-point shooters this year, you would have a really, really good contest. I wonder if it's time to reimagine this thing and make it more difficult and have you know half-court shots or logo shots or really like ramp up uh, you know what, what we're getting to watch from the three-point contest. Are you there? I don't know how they could make it more difficult, but they, I am, I'm with you. They should try to figure something out. I mean, the money rack is fun for sure. It does add excitement. But like, if they were to add some kind of pull-up three element here, I think that it would be even more entertaining. And since so many of these guys like take more pull-up threes than spot-up threes, that's just the way basketball is now, I think it could be really... like. I think that would be really uh, fascinating to see. Um, also, like if there was a way to contest some of the threes, I don't know how we would do that. If there's just like a guy holding a broomstick up or something, <laughs> I don't know. But um, that would be cool too. I'm just wondering whether we should make it more like um, you know gymnastics or ice skating, where you're doing a routine, right? So you get 60 seconds, and maybe you have a guy who gets to feed you the basketball. <laughs> you come onto the court. And you, you get varied amounts of points based on where you're shooting from and how much difficulty there is involved. And so you're going to have to train the judges, obviously, to, for what to look for if a sidestep three is more impressive than just a catch and shoot 
or you're going between your legs a couple of times before you pull up from the logo. But, you know, you sit back and watch that 60 second routine and then you give it a number as opposed to just who can mechanically shoot the most three pointers from these, uh, you know, the corner three spot, mm-hmm. the angle spot and all that. Cause that's not really the joy of three point shooting right now. To me, the joy of three point shooting is Steph Curry putting on these 16 move combinations, you know, making uh, LaMarcus Aldridge dance around in space and then bearing uh, a tough three-pointer in his face. So I don't know if you really want to do it contested, but maybe you just show these guys combining their ball handling with their shooting, with their range, and then we would really be on to something. Just experiment. Let's see how it goes. I mean, this is kind of a weird year anyway, so you might as well try it. You know, I just had an idea. Um, that's dangerous. Literally just Very popped dangerous. into my head. Oh God. Oh God. What is so, it? I'm, I'm looking at my list here and wouldn't it be incredible if two players went at the exact same time on opposite and they started in opposite corners. And so they basically, you know, they work their way up to the straightaway rack <clears throat> and like, Basically, they would end up kind of not physically fighting, but like trying to get as like as launch more shots than the other person. So like I'm thinking about if Dame was like staring down at Paul George as they started, like I I feel like that would be incredible. Wait, so there's a head to head mano a mano competition, but you're saying are they actually fighting for control of the basketballs at the center (laughs) rack? Is that what's happening? It's like a duck duck goose situation or what? Potential? No, like at the uh, potentially, like if someone was going way slower than the other person, then the other person would just get to the center rack before them and get all the balls. But like if they arrive there at the same time, they would be jostling for like more chances, and it would just be. I don't. I don't really know how it would work out, but I just want to see kind of Dame and Paul George get into a shouting match. I think that would be really entertaining for everybody, and they clearly have not worked through their beef. So uh, this is like a cooler way i think to do it than one guy goes and then the other guy goes right after them and they know how many balls that they have to hit um to beat the score like i i don't know i feel like this would be a little bit more interesting you're onto something i've just gotten an incredible idea lightning strike it's like ben franklin stuff over here um <laughs> what if they just play dodgeball michael would you rather watch the all-stars play dodgeball or do any of these other events Wow. Um, Dodgeball, very underrated youth activity. I mean, especially if you had guys like LeBron just whizzing passes off people's heads. I mean, it would be pretty fun to watch. I don't want to, like, totally derail this conversation, but you're taking me back to a place, elementary school gym class, Uh Red Rover. Just like, did you play Red Rover? Do Uh, you know that game? Absolutely played Red Rover. Classic. Yeah. So, (laughs) imagining NBA All-Stars playing Red Rover. Um, That would be great. That would, I I would actually pay money to see that, to be honest with you. Um, And I can also see... Like, I just can't even imagine LeBron losing at dodgeball either. Like, I would want to watch this. Like, this is... Yo- Jokic with, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> with the water polo passes could be incredible at dodgeball. At the same time, very big target, slow-moving target. So that's going to work against him. He's kind of all offense, no defense on dodgeball. What about capture the flag? Do you think John Morant's the greatest capture the flag player of all time? Extremely elusive. Uh that would yeah i was watching the the grizzlies hornets game from last night this morning and just like when he comes off the high pick and roll like the big is just so lost because or just like so helpless because this dude can change directions in the blink of an eye and 
I can't imagine someone trying to like you know if he's wearing you know how they wear the flags around your waist. Um, yeah, good luck sort getting of like that flag, flag football. Yeah, yeah, you're you're just not getting it. It's all over. So yeah, he would be dominant. I would pay big money to watch Joel Embiid try to get a flag off John Moran. That's not going to go very well at all. The thing about Ja too is he kind of moves and operates in three dimensions. You know how helicopters when they're rising they can kind of go like up and to the left at the same time. They can kind of bank at weird turns. That's kind of jaw when he attacks the rim, man. He has these weird floating layups where, like, you expect he's going to get a player control foul, and then he just kind of scoots out of the way. Even as he's rising, he's kind of rising up into the left or rising up into the right around defenders. It's pretty wild. He did this in a recent game against the Raptors where Kyle Lowry, who's, like, the greatest charge taker of all time, steps up, steps up actually after jaw has left his, his feet, and Ja, like, looked down to make sure he wasn't going to hit Kyle Lowry and somehow moved his body in midair and eluded him and made a left-handed layup. I was like, I watched it, like, three or four times because I was like, how is this even physically possible? Like, he's, how, like, how do you move from right to left after you leave the ground? That doesn't even, that doesn't make sense. It's, it's incredible. I'm telling you, he's probably looking down just like a helicopter tourist taking a little picture of Lowry as he flies by, just like <laughs> me at Mount Rushmore. I, I love it. Call him the chopper, man. It's Jaw the Chopper Moran. Um, so I think what we've we've realized here in response to Michael's question from Tasmania, the NBA just needs to do a field day. Forget about all these other events. Just bring it all back to the elementary school competitions. It would be so much fun and very, very fan-friendly. If that's what we're going for, trying to win people back after the national anthem controversy and contact tracing and everything <laughs> else, go with dodgeball, go with Red Rover, go with capture the flag. Everybody will be so happy. All right, Mike, let's get this thing back on track. We got a question from Niles in Zurich, and he's still upset about me putting the Dallas Mavericks as the number one league pass team. He said, for me, this is the 10th anniversary of owning league pass. I first got it for Dirk's unbelievable title run in 2011. Ever since then, the Mavs have been my league pass team, and I've watched almost every game the past decade, even through the bad years. With Luka games starting to be fun again really quickly, but this year I think his numbers lie a little bit while the hype keeps increasing and this is not just justified right now. It frustrates me because the national media seems to just pour generic praise and overlook anything bad that Luka does. Meanwhile, my impression is that he has lost the path of how basketball should be played a little bit and gotten distracted by stats and triple-doubles. His overall numbers still seem great, but Dallas's offense looks really bad and out of sync. Luca has become a ball stopper quite often. He dribbles so much. I would really like to know if the stats back up that eye test. I ask myself all the time, when did Dallas become such a selfish team? Last year, their offense was a thing of beauty. So uh, I'm with you. Look, this has been a really tough start for the Dallas Mavericks, and there's no question they have not been the most entertaining team to watch this uh, year, Michael. I can <laughs> I can grant that. I would put them maybe in the top 20 so far, but I would also say they're really coming on. I mean, the last couple of weeks when they've got their guys back healthy, they have started to win some games. They have started to be much more entertaining. I'm sure a lot of people saw that Saturday night game against Golden State, you know, right down to the wire, pretty crazy. Luka is dueling with Steph. You know, Steph puts up just this insane point total, but Luka gets his as well. I mean, that is much closer to what I was envisioning from the Mavericks this season than what we saw in the first month or two where, um, you know, they just had four of their starters out. And I do think that some of the negative uh, habits that Niles is pointing to here, Michael, is just a, a result of him 
losing the, the teammates maybe that you trust or your most skilled teammates in those games, constantly feeling like you're you know fighting with one hand tied tie behind your back, and then just trying to overcompensate by putting it all on your own shoulders. I think you could see some really frustrated body language from him as well. Um, you know, prior to this recent winning streak, where it's just like you know the whole world's crashing down on you because Porzingis is out and Josh Richardson is out and Maxi Kleber is out and just the list goes on and on. And you're out there with guys who don't really have a lot of chemistry together and, and frankly don't have a ton of talent. So I'm willing to give both Luca and the Mavericks a fairly wide berth here to start the season, and I feel the same way about Miami. And it's interesting because both Dallas and Miami now are finally starting to get some momentum after the early season struggles with uh, the, the COVID protocols. But their offense, um, you know, Dallas's offense has definitely been disappointing until late. And I think that they're starting to get their groove back a little bit. Um, you know, you saw a really fun game against the Atlanta Hawks on Wednesday night where, I mean, Atlanta mm-hmm. definitely should have won that game. I mean, Dallas just yes. stole it from them in the fourth <laughs> quarter. And it was because they couldn't miss a shot. I think they went something like 15 for 22 in the fourth quarter quarter everybody's pouring it on it's not just the Luca show the ball is moving the offense is coming from lots of different sources you know Jalen Brunson is picking on Trey Young and Tim Hardaway Jr. is going off and getting really really fired up about it and that's sort of the the Mavericks version that we imagine coming into the season at least that I did and so I don't want to leave them for dead yet I know a lot of people did Um, I think that was premature I still think they have the opportunity to work themselves back into the playoff mix, not just the play-in round, but you know, to, to be a top eight seed, I think that's very possible for them. And you know, we'll see if if some of Luca's worst habits uh, retract a little bit. You know, he was he was getting dinged for complaining to officials, for you know, slumping his shoulders, for being upset about uh, you know, just the overwhelming losses, just all kind of piling up. Luca just wears his heart on his sleeve. When they win, he's got the widest smile of anybody on the court, right? And and so I do think it's important to realize some of that is just innate personality from him. He's going to have to manage his negative emotions a little bit better. But at the same time, their entire organization is going to be riding his positive emotions when things are going well. And I think he's still capable of carrying them quite a long way. What did you think about that game Wednesday night, Michael? Uh, It was a fun one. I mean, I didn't know that you were allowed to like bowl over an opponent who's trying to set a screen before a sidelines inbound on the game's final possession. Are you sure that was a foul? Are you sure that was a foul, Michael? (laughs) I have, I I mean, Trey Young was so upset. It was really funny um, uh, after that one. I I don't know if it was a foul to be, I mean, probably it looked like, I I feel like if that was the second quarter, they would have called a foul. So take that with, uh, for what you will, but Um, I think just more, you know, zooming out on Dallas for a second, like, I I guess, like, this is exactly what I thought would happen with Dallas. I thought they would start slow. Um, I thought that, you know, you looked at the roster, uh, some of the pieces that they lost, I thought they would miss them dearly, and they have. Uh, Obviously, I didn't foresee the the COVID, uh, the impact that COVID has had on that team early on. But, like, I don't get too worked up about Luca so much like he's 21 years old uh, his temperament is going to be all over the map because he's like a, still a very young human being and he's going through uh, some adversity right now in his career professionally um, so I expect him to be you know a little upset at refs upset at teammates etc 
Um, their defense has been absolutely atrocious. Uh, like, forget about the offense, which to Niles's point in his email, uh, last season they ranked 15th in passes per game, and this year they're in the bottom five. So what he's seeing is reflected in the numbers a little bit. But, like, defensively, they're dead last in the NBA over the last 15 games, which is, I mean, that that was kind of the side of the ball that they wanted to fix. And, you know, even when some of these guys have been healthy, who they've, they've brought in, like Josh Richardson, and, um, to shore up the defense, it just hasn't looked right. So I'm still where I think I was before the season began on Dallas. I think that, you know, Chris Stapps is still going to be just a total question mark health-wise for the entire season, how they use him. Also, you know, he's posting up more after Rick Carlisle said that they would never post up Chris Stapps for Zingas last year when they were humming on offense. So I think there's a lot of question marks still with this team and the deficit that they have to, like the ground that they have to cover is problematic in the West. So I, you know, I was really surprised before the season began to see so so many people believe that they could have home court. Um, really smart people believe that in the West, and uh, I was also a little bit surprised to see uh, Luca be so heavily favored to be the MVP. And those expectations on someone who, yeah, he, he statistically he's incredible, but there's just a lot that just saying he's going to win the MVP and be the favorite to win the MVP in a league that is so flush with talent was just too much for me. Um, and I thought that that pressure was a little unfair going back to what you said earlier about, you know, comparing LaMelo to Magic Johnson. Yeah, he was the flavor but, of the month coming out of the bubble. There's no yeah. question. I think you're raising some some good doubts. I think Porzingis factors heavily in here, right? When you're talking about the defense you know, maybe not being good enough to sustain a playoff team, I would circle him. He gets picked on relentlessly. You saw actually down the stretch of that Hawks game, he didn't play. I would expect that to actually continue uh, if he doesn't get his body into a better place. I know he's back on the court, but he still is not moving right, in my opinion. And you get him out into space and he's just pretty much hopeless. When guys go right by him, they get whatever shot they want. So I, I think for Dallas, they're going to face some choices late in games. Like, is Porzingis actually part of their best lineups, or is it just Maxi? I wouldn't be surprised at all if if Porzingis is used a little bit, you know, in, in lighter doses here going forward because they do need to win games and they don't really have the luxury of allowing him to kind of work himself back into full condition on the fly. And I mean, that's a big fundamental question for their franchise kind of going forward. Um, and they're going to need to see better play from him if they want to live up to sort of the lofty expectations that some people had for them that you're describing. I still think they have a formula where the defense is bad and not terrible, but the offense is awesome and they can win enough games. I think that's still possible for them this season, but they have a long way to go still to get their offense to be awesome. And they're starting to get there. And it did start to look a little bit more like uh, a fun share the ball experience against Atlanta. And I hope that continues because uh, to me, they've just kind of been a sleeping giant so far this season. All right, Michael, we're going to close up with one final question on the other side of that Wednesday night game. It comes in from Abdul. He says, I nearly shed a tear reading Michael Pena's piece on Clint Capella. I would argue that no team made a larger positional upgrade than Atlanta did at center when they traded for Capella. Here's the Hawks center rotation last year. Alex Len, Damian Jones, and Bruno Fernando. Imagine going from that to watching Clint Capella anchor a palatable defense. It's so refreshing. And Michael, he wrote this in response to your column, making the case that Clint Capella was a defensive player of the year candidate. 
and your tweet which said, hey, everyone, he's the defensive player of the year. You just don't know it yet. Very, very good uh, Twitter tease there yesterday, Michael. You made me chuckle with that one. Um, I think Abdul has a great point. I mean, that was a gigantic position of need last year. It was one of the worst positions in the entire NBA, I thought, in terms of uh, you know talent and impact, and it showed through in their team defensive numbers. I thought it was a smart, calculated trade for them at the time. I didn't see it paying off quite as well for them this season, in part because of this John Collins question, how are you going to balance the minutes? Is it really going to work out? Now, it hasn't been a smash success. It's not like they're a top 10 defense right now. They're under 500 as we speak. I, I still think they're trying to figure out who they are. But for Capella, he's gotten some buzz um, from you and others about having a, a really nice start to the season. What made you want to write about Clint Capella? And are you sure, Michael, are you sure he's a defensive player of the year candidate? I think he's a candidate for sure. I think that that's fair. Um, you know, it's really funny when we're, you know, just peeling behind the, the window for a second or the curtain. Like when we're trying to come up with story ideas, for me, sometimes I'll just see a stat and be like, I need to do some deeper diving into why this stat is what it is. And so, you know, when defensive real plus minus gets released and Clint Capella is number one for basically the the glut of it being out as an available statistic, I'm like, okay, this is like, is this something legitimate? So then you look into the numbers, you see some of the on off stuff, you see some of the, you know, some of the luck that he has with opponent three point shooting. But then you watch some of the film and, you know, he's not switching as much and he's just in the paint and he's got like these ridiculous arms. You watch the 10 block game that he had against the Minnesota Timberwolves and the fact that he's third in blocks and his rim protection numbers are terrific. And most importantly, like one of the big issues with building around Trey Young is having an effective defense when Trey Young is on the floor because, you know, obvious reasons that we've gone over a million times. And when Trey Young is on the floor with Clint Capella, their defense is performing at a level that is second best in the entire NBA. Only the Los Angeles Lakers allow fewer points per 100 possessions. So, like, I think the sample size is pretty big here. And I'm not saying that he is the greatest. I'm not saying, like, he's Dikembe Mutombo yet. Um, I am saying that just I wasn't seeing his name so much in the conversation where you see, you know, Miles Turner was a very heavy favorite here. Um, you know, you have your Rudy Gobert's and some of the other names out there who are usually in the conversation. But I wanted to throw some love at Capella because uh, he's been playing terrific. And also, like, he, I interviewed him before I wrote the story, obviously. And he, like, legitimately, uh, like, really wants to make an all-defensive team. Like, he said it multiple times when I didn't, I didn't ask anything about it. And he just was out saying it, um, which I... I kind of love I love players who are very you know sometimes you'll ask a player um you know what are your goals for this season or whatever and they'll say those are like I'm keeping those private blah 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 like they don't want to gas themselves up and raise their own expectations externally but like Clint Capella wasn't shying away from it and so I I appreciate that I applaud that and I do hope he gets love throughout the season, and assuming that the Atlanta Hawks are able to keep this up. Yeah, check his contract language, Michael. Maybe he's got a bonus built in there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what he's lucky for. I do also think it's a function of just being free from a pretty rigid role 
and uh, a pretty rigid lifestyle in yep. Houston too, right? I mean, it's almost like a second life and you're like, wow, I can do whatever I want. You know, this is great. Like these guys really value me. I, I think there's uh, you know, a lot of that aspect to it too. I mean, he was just called on to do very, very little offensively for Houston and he had to cover up for a lot of uh, – you know, a lot of his teammates' mistakes there as well and, and try to hold down that back line and really getting no credit for it, no recognition for it whatsoever. I mean, I, covering their playoff runs, I swear he got onto the podium maybe like once or twice, like the entire postseasons. You know what I mean? Like he hardly mm-hmm. ever got his real opportunity to shine. And so it's a little bit of a different situation there in Atlanta with the younger team. I mean, look, they they keep his hands full, don't they? I mean, he's he's up to an awful lot of stuff back there. You know, in terms of the defensive player of the year race, I would say... You know, look, with Indiana coming back to earth, that's really going to cool Miles Turner's case, right? Um, You know, a lot of, I think the excitement around him was not only the big block shot number, but just the overall impact and, you know, their team defensive numbers looking really good and that contributing to winning. That's not really the case anymore. So I think he's going to lose a little bit of steam. I think Rudy Gobert has got himself in a spot if the Jazz continue to win like this, where you know they're not going to have anybody most likely in that MVP conversation. So don't you think voters are going to just kind of default and say, well, we're going to recognize the Jazz by giving it to Rudy? So I think that's a complicating factor for a player like Capella. But I think if you're the Hawks and you just did this random you know, midseason trade last year where um, they didn't really get a ton of attention for it because everybody was focusing on the Houston small ball angle, to come out of that with the player mm-hmm. who's even in this discussion or who's even capable of making himself a candidate for all defensive player of the year is a gigantic win. Here's my question, though, just to wrap this up for you, Michael. I mean, is he going to be good enough on offense? Can he help their offense enough to stay on the court major minutes in the playoffs to make his impact defensively, right? Because obviously there's some trade-offs with Capella, and I think you actually mentioned that in your article where when he's on the court, the spacing's not quite as great. Their offensive efficiency comes down a little bit. Uh, do you think that he's going to be this guy where if they need him to play 36 minutes in the playoffs, he's going to be able to do that or not? I mean, that's the question, right? And I think that, yeah, that was a big, uh, a central point of writing the piece because I am fascinated by someone who can impact the game so positively on the defensive end as a traditional big man. But then, you know, this guy has never made a three in his career. He, uh, misses half of his free throws like these are things that really matter at the end of of playoff games so 36 minutes is probably too much to be honest I mean Atlanta has a crowded front court as it is and they can do different things and have different options so I I don't know but I I I just I think that when he does play the impact is clear and I think that his the, the, the positives outweigh the negatives with him in a way that is just generally beneficial to Atlanta as Atlanta is trying to grow and take the next step as an organization. Um, but before we go, uh, you know, in watching a lot of Clint Capella's tape, uh, John Collins was also on the floor for a lot of those possessions. And I was thinking and I, I was I wanted to do like a column about this, but maybe I'll just spoil it here. Uh, why don't we have most improved defensive player as a as a an award? Well, Michael, I think you're the first person I've ever heard float this idea. I would say number one because most people don't care about defense. Number two because people don't like the most improved player award. So I think you're putting together like two concepts that don't taste well together. It's like a peanut butter and cream cheese sandwich or something like that. I mean, I don't know, Michael. Delicious. What do you think? 
Um, no, that yeah. That first of all, that sandwich sounds incredible. Uh, second of all, I, this would I think that this would be fun. Like I I personally <clears throat> follow. I mean, I I do love watching players defend and the the strides that John Collins has made on the defensive end. Maybe not last year to this year, but just like since he was drafted to this year are humongous i mean you saw some of those possessions last night against dallas where he's closing out on luca and luca can't get by him luca picks up his dribble and has to give the ball up so like john collins has been he's been terrific there's been some interesting things there and i do think it's kind of an auxiliary benefit if you have a lockdown backline defensive player they have the ability you know in a capella they have the ability to raise their teammates attention and focus right and just keep people um, you know, playing the right way. I think sometimes last year, for example, the Hawks are like, look, we know we can't play any defense. Like, And and you heard the center rotation that Abdul mentioned. It's like, we got Alex Len back here, bro. Who cares? You know, and it's like, then you're really not going to lo- get down, lock in, make the extra hard rotations, you know, run out to shooters and all that kind of stuff. It's just easy to lose control of the rope. And I think that that is a major benefit of that Capella addition is at least you feel like you've got some stability there. I think it's a great lesson here going forward for agents as well. If you're trying to find a new landing spot for your guy, uh, whether it's by trade or free agency, seek out the absolute dumpster fire rotations of the league. Because when your guy gets there, he's going to look so good by comparison, even if he's only above average. People are going to be coming along and saying, wow, he's had the biggest swing, the biggest impact. We've got to put him in the conversation for some awards. And that, that can work out great for people. Yeah, it's basically like the Biden effect. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> well, you said that, uh, not me, Michael. All right, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, you can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word and do it. You know, I want to see some more of those reviews, guys. We're missing out. If you're an overseas listener, help us out, please. We would love it. Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver on Twitter at Ben Golver. Michael, we will double back next week with our all-star reserve selections. If you guys have anything you want to send in in terms of your picks, guys you think you should make, who should make it, guys you think should be snubbed and left off, let us know. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. All right, Michael, until next week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is 
finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.